This is the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess, and we're knitting our way into episode number 43. Welcome to the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast, the tips, tools, and straight talk you want for pregnancy, childbirth, and bringing up baby. And now your host, Kristen Burgess. Hi, this is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com, and today we're going to figure out exactly what physiological birth is. Before I jump into the podcast topic today, I want to share with you that the bundle that I was so excited about last week is live today. So you can go to the homepage of naturalbirthandbabycare.com. There will be a banner there. There will be a green bar that drops down. Click on any of that, or if you're at the blog, click on the banner that's on the sidebar in the blog for the Ultimate Healthy Living Bundle 2014, and you'll be able to get the bundle. I am just, I am super excited about the bundle and especially excited to finally be able to share what's in it because it just happens once a year and it's only good for six days. And this year they're also capping the number of bundles that they sell. And I know that you're really busy right now and you really want to hear the podcast topic. So I'm not going to give you a long lecture, but I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what's in it. So it's, what it is is a practical collection of ebooks and also courses like My Mama Baby Birthing Course to help you and your family enjoy natural health and well being. So, these are resources that can help you define a new normal. If you listened to the podcast last week, we talked about what could a new normal look like for pregnant and birthing moms a happy and healthy normal for you and for your family. There are so many topics being covered. It's just. It's incredible. Stress relief, mothering, children's health, green cleaning, food and recipes. There's so much in there. I almost can't believe it. In fact, there's so much in there that they've put together a guide to help you figure out where to start. Uh, It's just, they've really done, the bundle organizers have really done a great job. And I'm so honored to have been asked to be a contributor. But it's just, it's really nice. It's, it is ebooks, and you can get the ebooks in either PDF or Kindle and Nook format. If you want the Kindle and Nook format, it's $10 more because they actually hired a gal who did a great job. She trans, she put my book, First Bites and Beyond, which is also in the bundle. She put that book, which is, it's huge and it has a bunch of recipes into Kindle format for me. And she did a fabulous job. So they're asking a little bit more to help pay her for all of her work because there's like 80 something books in the bundle. So she did a lot of work, but you'll also get the PDFs too. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. Uh, If Kindle or Nook formats don't matter to you, you can just get the PDF version. You also get a bunch of freebies. And when I say freebies, I mean like the best kind of freebies. You do have to pay shipping for some of them, which it, and I, I've already had access to get my freebies and it was like two to three dollars. I think five dollars was for the most. But there's a gift certificate to the Joyful Giraffe, which is a cloth diaper boutique. And I've got something coming. I'm hoping to do a video for you as soon as it gets here. Uh, there's amber baby jewelry, and I've already got mine from that. And you can get a Greek yogurt starter kit, um, or just, you know, the starter to start your own Greek yogurt. Kids Safe Herbal Tinctures. There's a three-month membership to Tradition, which is Modern Alternatives Mama's Meal Planning Service. All kinds of stuff like that. And I'm just, I'm really loving what I've gotten so far. And I haven't even mentioned everything. 
But what makes this so special is I think that it's, you know, it's real. This is practical information. Pretty much everybody in the bundle who contributed is a mom. So it's tested, you know, kid tested, mother approved kind of stuff. And it can really help you. It can help you in pregnancy. There are so many recipe books. So if you're in that slump of what do I make to, to grow a healthy baby, it's there. And, um, and I mean, there's allergen-free recipes, paleo recipes, anything like that. And it's just all kinds of stuff that can help your baby and toddler. Of course, there's stuff that's focused specifically on baby and toddler care, like my book, First Bites and Beyond, is how to start solids. And then there's all kinds of stuff on natural health. Uh, there's stuff on natural beauty for you, Mom. There's even a book on backyard chickens if you want to get started with your own chickens. And, of course, there's a lot on stress relief and on doing mama care. I've stressed on the podcast just how important that is. And apparently, I'm right because the mamas in the bundle believe it too. So since all of the authors in this, all the authors of the books and of the e-courses and then also the sponsors who are providing the freebies, we've all timed up teamed up to do it as like a big one-time sale so you get it at a good price it's like a thousand dollars worth of books and freebies and it's just under thirty dollars which is like 97 percent off and i think that 97 percent off makes me excited so i hope it makes you excited this is good until monday september 15th 2014 if you're listening in the future and have missed it i'm really sorry but if you're listening this week remember you only have till next week by the time next week next week's podcast comes out this will be over so if you want it grab it now again just go to the homepage of naturalbirthandbabycare.com or if you go to birthbabylife.com then you should see it in the sidebar but i would go to naturalbirthandbabycare.com and you'll see a link to the bundle go ahead and click that uh, if you're in the new if you're subscribed to the newsletter or the mini birthing course at trustbirth101 then you should get an email that tells you about the bundle and gives you an, a couple of reminders before the bundle sale is up. So don't miss it. Okay, I hope that was good. I hope that I kept it short and sweet. If you go to those links, you can see exactly what books and courses and bonuses are in the bundle to make sure that it fits you. But I'm pretty sure that it will because I was sitting there looking at one of the books and I told Scott, who was sitting behind me because his desk is kind of catty corner to mine, and I said, this is a really great book. And he said, well, of course, you wouldn't be in the bundle if it didn't have great books. But it's just, it's incredible how awesome it is for all moms. I mean, I'm talking about you with your baby, with your toddler. I'm talking about your mom, if she's into natural beauty care or if she's into gardening and stress relief. I mean, this is for moms of all ages, so be sure to check it out. Okay, I said I'd keep it short and sweet, so I'm going to stop now, and we're going to move on to our topic, but I really hope that you check it out. Go over to naturalbirthandbabycare.com and click the bundle link and check it out for yourself. Our topic for today, and I'm really excited about this topic too, so I hope I don't sound too overly bubbly for you, but we're going to figure out exactly what is physiological birth. I want to start that topic by telling you that birth is not mechanical. I was thinking about this podcast episode this morning, while actually while Scott and I were milking our goats. That's how we start every morning. We have milk goats, and 
it's kind of, it's a nice time to think because it's very rhythmic and the goats are warm and they're happy because they're munching away and, you know, you see the milk in the pail and that makes you feel good. So I was just, and I was thinking about what I wanted to say on the podcast episode and I was thinking about it as I was milking clover that, you know, just like milking, breastfeeding, any kind of animal care and any kind of care for any human being, be it an infant or an elderly individual, it just, it requires love and it's not just mechanic. Milking can be done by a breast pump or it can be done by a milk pump if you have one for your animal, but still that has to mimic a natural process. Natural processes, they're physiological. And physiological means a biological process. It does not mean it's a machine. So my goats are not machines that just squirt milk out for me. No more than, you know, a woman's breasts are machines that squirt milk out for a baby. They're not just bottles. They're a living, functioning thing. And birth, the birth process is not mechanical. You're not a machine just squirting out babies, no matter what people might say when you announce, oh my gosh, you're having baby number three. But it's not a mechanical process. Corwin, shh. Corwin apparently gets as excited about these topics as I do. So one of the big problems is that birth has been looked at as a mechanical process. The woman's cervix opens up. The woman pushes the baby out. The baby kind of squirts out. The baby starts breathing. And if you listen to the last two podcasts, you learned that baby has intense experiences during pregnancy and birth. He or she is an individual going through experiences, contributing to those experiences. And actually, it was on last week's podcast that I promised that we would talk about some of the hormones of birth. And I think it's those... Those hormones, in part, are what separates this from a purely mechanical process, though some people might say they simply orchestrate the mechanical process, kind of like gasoline. But that's not true, because when you put gasoline into an engine, it has a particular effect. And you can't do something to the engine to make it not accept the gasoline. I mean, you might could take, take it and put it on a chopping block or something, or a smashing block. But generally, once that gasoline goes in the engine at the gas station, psychological upsets aren't going to affect anything. Different lighting conditions aren't going to affect anything. You know, that's a mechanical process. Hormones are affected by so much more, so they're not like gasoline. That's not a good analogy. And looking at a woman's body as if it's a piece of technology is a poor analogy. And unfortunately, that's kind of the way that it's taught. I have I, I'm I am working through a midwifery school right now and in the curriculum I've had to do a lot of textbooks overviews and do a lot of looking at what sources are being studied in different schools. So one thing that I've noticed is conspicuously absent in these textbooks that teach how birth happens is looking at anything other than the mechanical process. They do acknowledge that the baby will rotate in a certain way, but even that can be looked at on a mechanical level. So it's the woman's body opens up and and the baby rotates and then the baby is born or more appropriately usually the baby is kind of half dragged out by the doctor who's there being a savior. 
And that's not an accurate representation of birth. In fact, the whole, the uterus contracts to open up the cervix really isn't valid. The uterus contracts to concentrate the uterine muscles on top of the baby to then push the baby out. And the cervix does efface and dilate during this process. But the primary job of the uterus is to form the strong muscle that will push the baby out. And it can do that without any help from mom, contrary to what you may have seen on a baby story on the Learning Channel. So birth is not just a mechanical process. And if it's not a mechanical process, what is it? It's a physiological process. And this is where we start defining what is physiological birth. And it goes far beyond just woman pushes baby out or woman kind of opens up or is forced to open up by medication and baby is dragged out or baby is cut out. And I don't say any of this to offend, but rather to inform because it's important for you to understand that birth, I mean, there's been many analogies made, but birth is like a symphony or like a dance. I mean, there's stuff has to go into it to make it function properly. And if something isn't working, then the dance doesn't work right. Or if something, if one instrument in the symphony isn't playing correctly, then it doesn't sound right. And birth is like that. That's not to say that you can't have a good birth when there may be interruptions to the physiological process. Many women can and do. But understanding that process helps you to stand up and say, this is what I want for my baby. This is what I want for my body. And it's important to be able to say that. We'll start by looking at those very hormones. And then we'll talk about a few other things that play into a physiological birth. But I think having an understanding of the hormones is important. This research that I'm going to be... I created my outline from was primarily done, excuse me, by Dr. Sarah Buckley. And you can get her book, which is Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. And this information is mostly concentrated in chapter six, but the entire book is just awesome. So I would recommend that you, that you read it. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's a must read. So if you're pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant or have contact with pregnant women or are raising a daughter or are raising a son and will one day have a daughter-in-law, please read this book. What Sarah says is that there's been lots of study done in human and animals to try and figure out what starts labor. But essentially, we don't understand what starts labor. And that's, that's an important place to start. It's an important acknowledgement to make right from the start because when you say okay we still really don't know it automatically makes you cautious because if we still really don't understand what starts labor in even lab rats and especially not humans then how can we have the audacity to think that we're safely inducing labor by whatever our arbitrary definition of when we should induce labor is. I mean, it's like playing with fire. Now, there are some situations where uh, induction is warranted, and then there are some emergency situations where induction isn't warranted, but an immediate C-section is. And yes, you just heard me, Kristen, from naturalbirthofbabycare.com say that. But I mean, if a situation is a true emergency and the baby is truly in distress, 
then that's grounds for getting the baby out and not inducing. And there are some situations where things may be going downhill, but baby could probably still tolerate labor, and induction might be good for those. But many of the situations, she's gone post-dates, the baby is, quote, too big, or whatever, uh, are not actually grounds for for induction or for planning a cesarean or whatever the case may be. And I can see, I think Well-Rounded Mama had a blog post about this recently, so I'll see if I can link to it, where she covered a study that showed several quote-unquote high-risk conditions where scheduled cesarean and induction actually weren't warranted. So you can see that. But basically, what we need to realize is that we don't exactly know why labor starts when it starts. Even now, in 2014, when I'm recording this podcast, and yes, I just dated the podcast, which they say is a no-no, but I already did it earlier. So we still don't know why labor starts, and we should feel really, really hesitant to then step in and start labor just because we can. We should hesitate about it. And there are many, many, many hormones. We do know there are many hormones that go into helping labor start. Estrogen, progesterone, cortisol, um... I don't even know if I can pronounce this one, corticotrophin-releasing hormone, and then also SPA. And you may have heard of SPA because it's, it is actually a protein that your baby secretes and it helps, uh, it helps the lungs mature. And researchers also think that it may directly stimulate the uterus. So that's just part of the hormonal cocktail that we know right now. And so we do know that it's a hormonal thing. And we do know, and research going back, I mean decades, has known that the baby plays a role. Something in the fetal brain, something that the fetal body secretes, maybe like SPA. So we know that this is an interplay between mom and, mom and baby's bodies, but we don't know exactly what starts it. And again, that helps us to be empowered enough and respectful enough to hesitate at doing anything other than what would naturally occur. Now, once birthing has actually started, there is a huge cocktail. Uh, Sarah Buckley calls it the birth cocktail of hormones that come together, and they tend to be in a pattern, and it happens throughout your labor. So at at the beginning, um, there's a lot of excitement, and that is a hormonally-fueled response. And this... This cocktail of birth that starts with this excitement, it's really, it's kind of nature's design, I guess, if you want to say nature or you want to say God or you want to say it was created over millennia by natural selection, whatever. This cocktail was created to help birthing moms, not to hinder them, not to just kind of be there while other people circumvent what they're supposed to be doing. The cocktail of hormones is actually purposeful. So, and, and these hormones build to their peak right at birth and shortly after birth. They help provide safety, which is something that I'll talk about more as I go through the podcast. And they can even create a pleasurable experience for mom and baby if things are left undisturbed. So, disturbances, uh, be that procedures, be that people... Be that a change in environment, be that something unpleasant in the environment, such as a screeching toddler, though I would say that's probably a minor disturbance. Um, 
any disturbances, any obstetric interventions can really increase pain and they can possibly even decrease the safety of birth. Birth is really, this birthing space, labor, your safety is, is, it's created and produced by the middle brain, by the limbic system. So it's not our higher brain. It's something that's perhaps you might say more primal, but something that's, I mean, it's meant to drive us on not a rational brain level. Woman, a woman needs to go off to labor land. You've probably heard that said, or you may have even experienced that in a previous birth where you are there, but you sort of feel like you're not there. It's kind of this timeless place. And that's often called labor land. It's, it's kind of like being a deep in a deep meditation a good way you can think about this is is when you're making love you probably have certain needs you may have had some exciting quickies in the back of a car or something at one point in your life but you probably prefer a relaxed situation where there's no babies crying no toddlers upset no children screaming and tearing the house down just outside your door you like it to be quiet you may like the lights to be low you need a particular environment and that and you're actually relying on a lot of the same hormonal systems that come into play during birth during lovemaking and so you can think about the the conditions that you would want to be with your lover and those are very similar conditions that are good for birth and it's all fueled by similar hormonal patterns hormonal cocktails and by that limbic limbic brain area so let's get back to the excitement. You're feeling the excitement at the beginning of birth. And this this is fueled by the catecholamines. So epinephrine or norepinephrine, which are also adrenaline and noradrenaline. And you've probably heard that those hinder birthing. And at on a level, they can. So at first, you feel those, and there is a little bit of excitement. There is a little bit of surge, a surge of adrenaline going on there. And you're feeling really excited. And then as your birthing time progresses, that subsides. Now, if it doesn't subside because, for instance, you get distressed or you're worried or you're scared or your environment is uncomfortable for you, then those same hormones that are natural and normal when you feel that initial thrill of excitement that, oh my gosh, I'm about to meet my baby, can that thrill of excitement can turn into fear or worry that can literally block the labor process and i think many of you are probably aware of that already because this effect has been documented and it is one of the criticisms of the modern medical system that it tends to induce adrenaline or the fight or flight response rather than the calm and connection response which is fueled by oxytocin which we'll talk about more in a minute so, but do know that it's natural to feel that, that excitement at the beginning and that little thrill of excitement. And usually that does pass as you move into labor land. Prolactin also comes into play during labor. It is the hormone that is best known during breastfeeding and it causes a tender mothering response and that, that really begins to rise in birth. I don't know that it has a major impact on birth itself or I should say we don't really understand yet. It's, excuse me, complete impact on birth itself. But we do know that that it causes tender mothering feelings and that it needs to rise and that it especially begins to rise during breastfeeding times. 
Estrogen and progesterone have a really large role during birthing. These are the sex hormones. Progesterone is actually produced by the placenta during pregnancy, and it's 10 to 18 times higher than pre-pregnancy levels. And estriol, which is one of the three forms of estrogen, is the major form of estrogen that plays a part in birthing. And it's more than 1,000 times higher than pre-pregnancy. And it surges even more as labor is, is beginning and as labor is getting close. They play a critical role in the initiation of labor. We don't completely understand why. It's really complex. It may be just the change in levels. It may be that these massive hormonal surges have an action on the mom's uterus. Maybe it's both because the large surge has an action on mom's uterus. But uh, whatever it is, it's really we know that it's really important to birthing. We do know that estrogen increases the number of oxytocin receptors. And if you read, I posted an article on the blog just yesterday, which is called, Will the Real Oxytocin Please Stand Up? So if you go to naturalbirthandbabycare.com and in the blog, you can find that post. Again, it's called, Will the Real Oxytocin Please Stand Up? And read that. It'll take you a few minutes to read it because it's pretty long, but it's, it's worth the read. And it talks a lot about the importance of oxytocin receptors because there are various feedback loops that happen during birthing and uh, and your oxytocin receptors are really important to those feedback loops. So estrogen increases the number of receptors which are going to be essentially open and awake and ready to accept oxytocin. Um, estrogen also increases the number of muscle cell connections that there are. Uh, and I think they're technically called gap junctions. And that helps prime the uterus to be ready for contractions. And that is the uterus's primary role during birthing. And it is ready to do the work for you, mama. Estrogen and progesterone are also believed to act as painkillers. So they kind of prime opiate pathways so that you're ready to accept uh, the pain-killing effects that are coming, especially from hormones like beta-endorphin, which we'll get to in a minute. Right now I'm going to talk a little bit about oxytocin, and again I want to refer you to the article, Will the Real Oxytocin Please Stand Up, because I have all that in written format. I'll put a link to it in the show notes too. It's called the love hormone. It's important in birth, breastfeeding, having an orgasm, any sort of sexual activity, but it's also really important in any kind of social activity, so petting your cat or your dog or hugging your older child or even sharing a meal with family or friends. So it's um, Michelle Odette, and we're going to talk more about him in a minute. He calls it the hormone of, quote, forgetting oneself. It makes you want to connect with other people, to be open to them, especially to your child or your children or your lover, but also to friends and family. It's just, it's an important hormone in human social interaction, but we're going to talk about it in birth. It's created in the midbrain. Uh, and by the hypothalamus, and it can be released directly to the body, but it's also stored in the pituitary gland. 
and it is released in pulses. This is an important difference between oxytocin and pitocin, which is relentless and comes in a continuous stream. And again, my article goes more into that. But you should understand that oxytocin is released in pulses. It's about every three to five minutes early in labor, and it helps stimulate your contractions. And it becomes more frequent as labor progresses. That pattern makes it difficult for scientists to study and even to understand, but we do know that it's a pulsing pattern that increases as labor goes on. It's associated with the contracting of the uterus in all animals, including humans. Uh, and then the placenta makes what's called oxytocinase, which is an enzyme that helps metabolize oxytocin and that's another reason why oxytocin can be difficult to measure or understand and there's more oxytocinase going on during labor so the placenta in addition to your baby and your body is also working and it's they researchers think perhaps this helps keep the uterus from getting overloaded during labor keeping the uterus sensitive to oxytocin's effects. And this is one of the dangers of pitocin, that pitocin is so relentless that the uterus kind of shuts down its receptors, becomes desensitized to the effects of both pitocin and natural oxytocin, which can lead to what's called uterine atony or the uterus won't contract, it won't respond. And as you can imagine, that's pretty dangerous to the mom because then bleeding may not be able to be controlled. So oxytocinase, which is created by the placenta, may be a natural system of checks and balances for the effects of oxytocin during birthing. Again, something we don't fully understand and therefore something that we should be really careful about having the audacity to mess with. And unfortunately, pitocin is one of the biggest things that we mess with that undermines this entire hormonal system and all of the body's checks and balances. Okay, back to oxytocin and its receptors. They increase substantially during late pregnancy. There is a mom, mom increases in her sensitivity to oxytocin, um, but circulating levels of oxytocin, they do increase throughout pregnancy. They grow from the first trimester to the late to the third trimester, to just before labor. But circulating levels of oxytocin at the time of labor don't seem to rise considerably until late labor. And the receptors are most dense in the uterus and at the top of the fundus. So the fundus is, is the top of your uterus. If you've ever had your doctor or midwife measure your fundal height, then they measure to the top from your pubic bone to the top of your uterus. So that's the fundus. And that's what gets so thick. You heard me mention this earlier. That is what gets so thick while you're in labor and then that thick concentrated muscle at the top of the fundus is kind of like a little foot giving the baby the boot out um and i really i guess i really think that's so cool so maybe you think i'm weird for that but i think that's awesome that that happens that the body can do that but those oxytocin receptors really collect up there as the fundus thickens and that's important for encouraging those strong contractions that are going to push or perhaps boot baby out of the uterus my last few babies have just been booted out so <laughs> they got no graceful exit because my body was just ready to do all the work itself and maybe that's one of the reasons i think this is so funny it's because i'm just so in awe of that and I don't want to linger on that, so let me move on. 
Okay, oxytocin again, it's a major initiator of strong and rhythmic contractions. It, but it's not the only hormonal system that's involved. Prostaglandins may be responsible for late contractions, and prostaglandins also work to help soften the cervix. I don't know that I talk about them again, so let me mention that now. So uh, prostaglandins, you may, if you know of a friend who's had an induction or a sister, or maybe you yourself, you may know that they use prostaglandins or synthetic prostaglandins to try and soften the cervix before bringing in the Pitocin because a Pitocin induction can fail because a woman's body is just not ready for it. Um, so the prostaglandins are brought in to help soften the cervix initially, and that's one of their jobs. And you, of course, have natural prostaglandins. And um, there's another feedback loop with oxytocin where there's more oxytocin equals more prostaglandins, which equals more uh, oxytocin, which equals more prostaglandins. It's, it's one of the feedback loops in birthing. And also there's prostaglandins in semen, which is something that many women naturally end up with around their cervixes. Uh, close to labor just because you're making love to your husband. So I'm not saying that that's going to induce labor, but that's where the old wives' tale that that does induce labor comes from. And of course, it causes contractions. Lovemaking does pleasurable ones. But primarily, it's prostaglandins, and they may also help aid with labor contractions later on in labor. Oxytocin has a pain-killing effect. Oxytocin is also important to the baby, and during birthing, your baby is releasing a lot of oxytocin, and the baby's oxytocin may get to you through the placenta, uh, and in fact, there's also more oxytocin produced by the placenta and the fetal membrane, so the amnion and the chorion, the amniotic sac, that's producing oxytocin. There's oxytocin in the amniotic fluid, uh, in my article, Will the Real Oxytocin Please Stand Up?, I cover how oxytocin may have the effect of kind of putting the baby in more of a sleepy, trance-like state where the, the functions of the body systems are depressed because, uh, as we talked about last week, and as you saw from the UK Resuscitation Council, birth is kind of a hypoxic event, which means that there's not as much oxygen going on to the baby. There's periodic compression on the cord, and there's just a lot of squeezing going on. And oxytocin has a protective effect for your baby at that time. And does Pitocin have that same protective effect? My guess would be not. Um, so you want your baby to get natural oxytocin, and as you can see, baby, placenta, amniotic sac, amniotic fluid, all of those have oxytocin flowing in them, so it's very important. In late labor, oxytocin is, is responsible for final, the final powerful contractions that your baby feels. Your baby's head is descending down, as we talked about on last week's podcast, and that stimulates stress receptors in the vagina, which or the birth canal, which triggers oxytocin to be released from the pituitary. And this, this is another feedback loop, which is also called the Ferguson reflex. Excuse me. So the triggers stretch the receptors again, which causes more oxytocin to be released, which causes the contractions to push the baby's head down into the birth canal more, which, you know, it's just, it's a continuous loop. Birth requires a lot of feedback loops and we don't want to interrupt them. So in an undisturbed labor, this Ferguson reflex works. And this is where our adrenaline or epinephrine and norepinephrine, noradrenaline come back into play. 
because it's at this point when the baby is getting ready to be born uh, that the fetal ejection reflex is created. And that's a, a term uh, popularized by Michelle O'Dent. He says it didn't originate with him, and I can't remember to whom he gave the credit right now. I can perhaps put it in the show notes. But but that's a term that he's really used a lot and has brought into, uh, so to speak, the popular ver- vernacular. And that's essentially a kind of strange way to say your body is just going to shoot the baby out. Kind of like you may have heard with breastfeeding, there's a milk ejection reflex, which is when your milk lets down and it's just coming out pretty much on its own. This fetal ejection reflex is what your body does. And we'll talk about it more in just a minute because I'm going to come back to those catecholamines. After birth, oxytocin is very important in ensuring safety. The levels stay high. In fact, they pretty much rise as high as you'll ever experience oxytocin in the moments after birth. Pulses continue to come. They're really stimulated by your baby licking and nuzzling and massaging at your breasts, which if you and baby are left undisturbed, that's what will happen. Your baby probably won't latch on right away. And I really understand where lactation consultants are coming from when they want to push immediate breastfeeding and midwives are coming from because they want to stop postpartum hemorrhage by breastfeeding. But naturally, babies are usually pretty chill after birth. They want to look at you and check you out and lick and nuzzle. And and oxytocin is being stimulated during all of that behavior. It's not just nursing. But when that is interrupted, as Carla Hartley says, by hatting, chatting, and patting, where everybody else is touching the baby and asking you questions and, oh, look, and it's a girl or it's a boy, you know, all of that's going on, that disturbs that time and that can interrupt the oxytocin flow. It's not the absence of baby nursing. It's because of the absence of... Um, or the interruption of what baby is normally doing, which is that licking and nuzzling. All of that leads up to nursing, and all of that causes a pulse of oxytocin. Also, just the fact that your baby is skin-to-skin with you and is making eye contact with you helps to to stimulate pulses of oxytocin. And in my own research, I've also found that the smell of your baby, so that smell that's coming off of your baby and is especially concentrated in the scalp, if you've had a baby or if you've held a newborn or even a two or three month old and you put your head down against, or your nose down into their hair or against their head if they've got no hair, and you just, you can really smell that wonderful new baby smell. And that is a powerful thing that causes oxytocin pulses. And there may also be pheromone action, which is still something that we don't understand a lot about that's going on there too. Those all cause pulses of oxytocin. And then, of course, when the baby does start nursing, which may be 20, 30 minutes, maybe even 45 or 60 minutes later, um, there's another pulse of oxytocin from that. And all of that works to keep your uterus contracted and firm. Oxytocin, after the birth, it peaks at about 30 minutes and subsides throughout the first hour. This is also true for your baby because, remember, his or her body has been producing oxytocin, but your baby's levels stay elevated well above normal for days, and your baby continues to get more in your milk because your breast milk produces oxytocin. And oxytocin's effects on the uterus 
and throughout your uterus and the obviously once the placenta is gone and all of those sources of oxytocin lessen. But it continues to be really important in your brain. And it, it is really helpful in maternal behavior along with uh, prolactin, which I talked about earlier. But it's just, it's really important. And as you can see from the fact that it's so prolific throughout all of the systems of mama and baby and throughout all of the things that happen during labor and birth, it's just really important. And Sarah Buckley goes into way more effects that it, it has in that chapter, but I'm not going to go into them because I know that we're already pushing it to a long podcast. And I do want to talk about beta endorphin and a few other things. So beta endorphin is the hormone that is really responsible for labor land. So this is the one that gets interrupted if adrenaline is acting when it shouldn't. But it is truly the hormone of pleasure and transcendence. Or I guess it should be beta endorphins because it's a group of naturally occurring opiates. And they actually work on the same receptors of the brain as opiate drugs, which may be why humans are so attracted to opiate drugs or pain relief drugs. And just like those drugs, they, but naturally in a way that your body is supposed to, to have, they increase pleasure, euphoria, and they they could also spark dependence. Now, I, I mean, I don't know. Some people may argue me with six kids. Maybe I'm addicted to having babies. But, you know, most women aren't thinking, oh, I, I need to, you know, I need to keep having baby after baby to get that, that birth high. Though it is true that many women right after they've had a great natural birth, they say, oh, I wish I could do that again right after that. Because there's just that super awesome high that you get from birth and those effects that the beta endorphins do have. They're, they're released during times of pain. So if you cut yourself or something, they're kind of a protective mechanism for the baby. And they also are an active reward system. So they work uh, during mating or lovemaking. They work during birth. They work during breastfeeding. And they can also come into play during other social behaviors, like when you give a friend a pat on a back or when you give a friend a hug, that sort of thing. You know, just when you're being close to other people, just like oxytocin, they're a, they are a group of social hormones. During pregnancy, beta endorphin increases a mom's pain tolerance. It also works to suppress the immune system somewhat, which researchers think helps protect the baby. But again, it really comes to center stage during labor. Beta endorphin levels increase throughout labor, and they help you transcend pain. They help you go to labor land, which is literally kind of an altered state of consciousness. So you'll hear moms say, I felt timeless, or I felt like I was out floating in the universe, or one with all the women who were birthing at that time. And beta endorphin is what is helping achieve that altered state, that transcendent state, that deeply meditative state that so many birthing moms seem to be in. Beta endorphin peaks at birth, subsides within one to three hours, but it's still acting there to reward and reinforce mothering behaviors and to create pleasure and ecstasy. That feeling, that post-birth high of, man, I did it. I won the race. We are the champions, you know? That's uh, fueled by oxytocin, fueled by beta endorphin. It's natural. It's normal. It's protective. It's important. It's nothing anybody should make you feel guilty about. So uh, enjoy it, relish it while you can experience it. Um, These levels will return to normal within a few days throughout most of the body. 
They remain active in the limbic system for a little bit longer and may help with some sort of limbic imprinting. But again, researchers don't know too terribly much about what's going on. We do know that baby also secretes beta endorphin and again, the placenta is involved on the action too. And maybe babies is responsible for some limbic imprinting. Some midwives talk about how birth is really important to what baby views the world as. And maybe having your body flooded with oxytocin and beta endorphin helps prime a baby to see the world as a positive and pleasurable place to be rather than as a scary and negative place. And again, maybe we should think about the implications of interrupting these systems and then denying a baby that blueprint, um, you know, that hormonal blueprint that he or she was expecting and should have had, and then instead imposing a blueprint of pain and fear. I'm not saying that can never be overcome. In fact, a lot of research has shown that especially with oxytocin, that uh, our brains are very plastic, you know, they're, they can be molded and we can overcome things, but why force a child to have to overcome a bad start when we could protect that in the first place? And I think that's an important question for us as parents to ask because one of our primary jobs in the early years is to be a protector uh, as we wait for our child to grow and mature and eventually become an adult and handle everything for themselves. But certainly in the infant stage, we're protecting, caring for, and nurturing our baby. And so that start would ideally be a good and a gentle one that honors these normal pathways and these normal hormonal blueprints that should be placed into our baby's bodies. Again, beta endorphin helps with breastfeeding. And there's a lot in mother's milk, so that helps make blessed, blessed feeding. breastfeeding pleasurable for you and baby. Back to the catecholamines, which are the fight or flight hormones. And I was surprised to learn that they do play an important part in labor. Um, and so you might be surprised, mostly because we've heard that they're so negative. But the truth is, is that at the end of your birthing time, they are really important for that fetal ejection reflex. You don't want them early in labor, past that initial excitement. You know the butterflies in your stomach feeling. But once that's passed, you don't want them. But they do begin to slowly rise naturally during labor. If they rise too fast, that can slow or stall labor uh, so that you know you can get up and run away from the tiger or the doctor. Sorry, that was a bad joke. And to be completely honest, there are midwives that can bring that response on too. So it's not just limited to doctors, but that's the purpose of those hormones rising too fast is to help you get to safety. Um, and, and it can also, norepinephrine especially, or noradrenaline can reduce blood flow to the uterus and the placenta, which helps stop that. But it, you can imagine it's also not very comfortable for baby. So we want to prevent that. Uh, but very high levels... At, at the very end of labor, actually stimulate the fetal ejection reflex. So this is what's really happening at transition. And it, it mostly only happens following an undisturbed birth when this natural surge can actually surge and it hasn't already been surged because mom is terrified or scared or worried or being pressured uh, or being accused or being guilt-ridden, whatever. But if the birth is undisturbed, and that should really be the word that we use for physiological birth, this undisturbed birth, but when birth is undisturbed, Michelle Odent notes that this rises right at transition and it is what helps stimulate the uterus to just 
push that baby out. And if you've experienced pushing before, you may have experienced it as this undeniable, overwhelming urge to push. For me, with my first three births, it was very overwhelming and almost scary. And and I wasn't sure how to integrate it or work with it. For my last three births, uh, it was I don't know if it was that I was different or that things were really way more relaxed, especially my fourth birth, because it was just me and my husband. My midwife didn't make it in time. Um, but, you know, just it was just me and my body and nobody telling me anything about what was going on. It, it was just me experiencing the feelings. And my body just pushed. There was no way I was stopping it. There was no way I was stopping that baby from coming out. The baby was just coming. Now, during my last birth with Corwin, who you've heard in the background some today, um, I was, you know, I was really focusing on softening. That's a word from the pink kit. Um, and just softening those muscles and relaxing in the birth canal to help his head coming through be as gentle as possible. But that's what I was focusing on doing. My body was pushing him out whether I was ready or not. So I'm not saying that you can't have conscious control or be consciously thinking during this time, but often your body is doing what it's supposed to do, especially in a nice undisturbed birth, which Corwin's was. Uh, Even though I had spectators, I had my three eldest children in the room and my midwife and, uh, and her assistant midwife and my husband were there, but they didn't even realize that the baby was born until I asked Scott to help me bring him up. So I was, you know, but my body was doing all the work and it was just pushing him out. And I was consciously making sure that I stayed relaxed so that his passage through my birth canal was gentle. But but my body was doing all the work and it was just amazing. And that's adrenaline kicking in at that last minute. And I can remember what I was thinking and my thoughts and just analyzing. I was consciously thinking. I guess I kind of woke up out of labor land, so to speak. And I feel pretty confident that that was also fueled by adrenaline because before that I was definitely in that labor land place where it was kind of timeless and I had a thought here and there, but mostly I was just focused on working with my baby. And then suddenly there was this awakening. And I feel like that's, that's every woman and every baby's birthright to experience that. So that's, that is what happens with, with the hormones during birthing. And again, they're, these hormones are really protective. I want to emphasize that over and over and over again because they're protective in that they provide pain relief and they're protective in that they literally provide protection for you from things like postpartum hemorrhage, for you from things like prolonged or stalled labor, for baby from things like oxygen deprivation or, you know, just the normal ebb and flow of labor from those contractions causing more stress than your baby can deal with. This hormonal system is part of the physiological system. It's what facilitates the mechanical process, perhaps, or the biomechanical process of the cervix opening, of the fundus thickening, which is when the, that is where the bands of the uterine muscle come up from the sides and around the bottom and thicken on the top, as we talked about earlier. Uh, so those hormones are facilitating that, but it goes beyond that. And there is really so much that can interrupt that. And that's where we need to pause and say, this is an obviously intricate and complex system. So intricate and complex that we cannot fully grasp it with our human level of understanding. So we should pause before messing with it. And we should probably do everything we can to protect it and only intervene at the last minute when it's obvious that that something is not 
not working. And in a stalled labor, often time will assist with that. As I talked about last week, if baby needs to rotate into a position, nobody's seeing that happen on the inside. So we think labor is stalled when in reality, you may not be working as hard uh, or you may feel like you're working continuously with no progress, but baby is actually doing something in there. So uh, stalled labor is is means to step back and wait and say, is it safe to wait? Is anybody in immediate danger? And usually the answer is no. So that's a good question to ask all the time. Is anybody in immediate danger? Would it matter if we did this right now or 30 minutes from now? I mean, if they tell you you need an emergency cesarean and we'll do it in 30 minutes, is it really an emergency? If it was an emergency, wouldn't they be wheeling you to the operating room and saying the baby will be out in two minutes? Yeah, so if they can give you 30 more minutes, then you can take that time. And there are things that you can do when you're really tired to help rest. And that's a, that's a topic for another podcast. But again, just take that time uh, or take a minute to think about it. And going with our theme of what is a new normal, what if birth were awesome? And what if we actually respected this for every woman and only intervened when it truly became clear that there was intervention needed? I I mean, what if we let women's bodies do what they were meant to do? How would that change our perception of childbirth? How would that increase the safety of birth when we do have this advanced medical technology that can be life-saving when needed and we only used it when needed? Wouldn't we have an awesome respect for birth? And wouldn't we also have moms and babies who would have been in trouble who aren't? But the moms and babies who didn't need that help aren't compromised and aren't endangered by introducing interventions when they're not needed. And that's probably one of the biggest things I want to impress upon you is there are times when interventions are needed. And I believe that your intuition will often tell you when that is. But the vast majority of the time, this system and all of its complexity and all of its beauty is designed to protect you and baby. Now, a few other things, and then I'll end the podcast because, again, I know it's getting long, is that environment. I already mentioned that, but that's very important. So Michelle O'Dent, the doctor I referred to already, he talks about the fact that you need to keep the environment quiet, dark, undisturbed, the same things that you want for lovemaking. And maybe you have something that you want, music, candles, things to facilitate the dim lighting, but there's not a hustle and bustle. There's not an in and out. There's not tons of vaginal exams. There's not tons of procedures. You're not interrupting this. Basically, you're letting the mama go. And anybody who's there is sitting on their hands or drawing a picture or knitting a scarf, minding their own business and letting mama get on with hers. You may have a labor support person, your husband or a doula, who's there for you, but he or she is going to be subtle, quiet, is going to work on reading your body language and your cues and not so much engage you in chatter and talk. Corwin. Shh. <laughs> As Corwin's chattering. They're, they're going to be reading what's going on with you more than that. That helps protect you being in that space and in labor land. And then that same respect and protection needs to continue postpartum because then you're with your baby. You're bonding with your baby. And there are there's so much happening at that point that we don't even understand. We only see the tip of the iceberg, but we know that we don't want to mess with that. Again, you don't want to have the audacity to mess with a system that's been carefully designed to not only only keep mom and baby safe but to preserve mom and baby's well-being for months and maybe years to come it's good to respect that natural 
that natural process, that physiological birth, and to describe it really the way that it should be, that undisturbed birth level. Okay, I'll put some links in the show notes for more reading because I know this is getting long and I want you to be able to go. Don't forget to go to naturalbirthandbabycare.com and get your bundle. And if you would like to know when the latest podcasts come out and more tips for birth and baby, then you can go to trustbirth101.com and sign up for the newsletter there. But definitely go to naturalbirthandbabycare.com. Check out the bundle. And if you're really eager to learn more about all of this and how you can how you can stand up and say this is what I want for my birth. Remember that my entire 8 week online childbirth course, my mama baby birthing class is available as part of the bundle this week. It's normally $97 and you get it for like $29.97 or something as part of the bundle. So please feel free to jump on that. Head over to naturalbirthandbabycare.com and I can't wait to see you in the mama baby birthing classes and I hope that you and your baby have a blessed and awesome week. Thanks for listening to the Birth, Baby and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess. For great resources and tons more info, visit www.birthbabylife.com. Visit www.birthbabylife.com.